You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Onyx Hunt and Onyx Maps. Now, I got to have a a little heart-to-heart with you here real quick. I used Onyx Maps on my phone every single day during the hunting season. Whether I was out west during my elk hunt, South Dakota mule deer hunt, or my rut vacation in Iowa, I was on my phone using Onyx Maps every part of the day. Whether I was looking at terrain features uh, on the topographic and and satellite maps that they offer on their uh, their app, or if I was leaving a waypoint like a watering hole or where I left my trail cameras or tree stands, or if I was marking a route from a campsite to a glassing position or from my truck to a tree stand location. I used Onyx Maps every single day, and I feel like it's an app that made my life a little bit easier. I don't know about you, but uh, there's been times in the past where I have been trying to find a tree stand based off of memory and not off of looking at a map and uh, I I have gotten lost in the dark before I had to wait till sun up and then and then you know find it that way but that problem does not exist anymore because of Onyx and uh, there's a ton of other features that I think you guys need to check out go to onyxmaps.com and uh, check out uh, all the functionality of the app Uh, download it to your phone give it a try and when you do decide to purchase enter the discount code nation 20 n-a-t-i-o-n two zero and for new users you're going to receive 20% off. So, onyxmaps.com. This is a Houndsman XP podcast with your host, Steve Fielder, and me, Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up, and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. In this episode of the Houndsman XP Podcast, we catch up with Steve while he's on the road on a bear hunt in Virginia, and Steve is with me today, and we're going to record this uh, little pre-roll for this interview, and I'm really looking forward to this interview, Steve. I've never met Heath Hyatt, but I feel like that uh, we could have a lot of good conversation. We have a, a common background, and the way we our career paths have been very similar so looking forward to this one oh yeah you and uh heath would no doubt spend hours talking about your experiences training uh dogs for police work uh tracking and and drug sniffing and all the other things that go (laughs) along with it but yeah heath hyatt is a good buddy of mine he and i have been friends since back uh i think we in the interview we talk about it goes back to about 1997 when we met at plot days and 
right away I saw in Heath a guy that's really serious about his hounds. I mean, this guy, you know, he's a he's a sergeant with the Christiansburg, Virginia Police Department. He's a certified master trainer of police dogs. And so he, obviously he's serious about his work, but that spills over into his hounds. And he's always been that way from a kid when he first started out. You know, he was one of those guys I noticed that when you went to the woods, he had a handle on those hounds. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there was, uh, you know, they were under his voice command all the time. And this was even before I'm sure he learned, uh, you know, the better ways of doing that. Right. But anyway, uh, Heath has invited me on a couple of occasions uh, to come and to stay with him there. He has a beautiful home out in the country in Virginia. Um, he works in Christiansburg, but a nearby town is Blacksburg, and that's the home of Virginia Tech. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a big college town and all, but surrounding that area are some, uh, it's some of the best bear hunting uh, with hounds in the country. And so we've been having a great time running bears. Uh, this hunt has been just phenomenal. We treat a bear every day, and uh, I've got to see some great hound work out of uh, Heath's dogs and, and his buddies. There's a there's a group of, of guys that, that hunt together and you know all about that from your experiences and uh, of how these teams work together. Yep. And uh, I've seen that in, in operation here. So anyway, Heath's going to be a great interviewer and I know you're going to enjoy it personally, uh, Chris. Yeah, I sure will. And we've talked about the relationships and the friendships we've built along the way in our hunting heritage here with these hounds and we're going to showcase a friend of houndsman xp a guy that has done a lot for us uh, from being on the podcast to providing some giveaway items in our raffles and that is nick gilliland of nightlife kennels he runs a youtube channel and Steve, you interact with Nick a lot and talk to him a lot and uh, just kind yeah, of take you, it from there. Yeah, you know, Nick is one of those people that you like immediately when you meet him. Uh, he's a big guy. You can't miss him in the crowd. No. Uh, but he's not that big, imposing guy. He is a very warm, uh, uh, accessible person, loves to talk to people, loves to share the knowledge that he has. Perhaps the biggest uh, quality that I've found in Nick is his uh, extreme honesty. Uh, you know, he has a servant's heart. He wants to help people, but he's very, very humble in the way he goes about it. So, yeah, Nick, uh, we appreciate you out there, buddy. You've been a great friend of Houndsman XP, and I know that people that choose to contact you there at, at Nightlife Kennels, uh, for products or advice on on your YouTube channel, are going to get uh, more than they asked for. And just a big shout out to you, buddy. You're doing a great job. Yeah, listeners, make sure you're looking up uh, Nick on uh, YouTube and search for Nightlife Kennels, and you are going to get a whole lot of information there. Q and A. Nick's done some editorial stuff. He captures a lot of hunts, and we've had him on here before. So if you haven't heard that podcast, go back and check it out, and then look for him on YouTube. For sure. Well, Steve, I can't wait to hear this interview, so let's get to it. All right. Let's uh, let's settle back here, crank up the recliners, uh, sit back with Heath Hyatt, and let's learn how 
to apply police dog training to have better hounds. Sounds good. Welcome to the Houndsman XP Podcast. This is your host, Steve Fielder, coming to you from the beautiful mountains of Virginia today, uh, here with my longtime friend, fellow houndsman, Heath Hyatt. Uh, Heath is a sergeant with the Christiansburg, Virginia Police Department, and he's a master trainer of police dogs in the state of Virginia. He runs a group of 13 police dogs in the New River Valley region, which uh, ranges from Roanoke to Withful in southwest Virginia. Uh, Heath runs a basic school for dogs and handlers, for per- police dogs and handlers. Uh, he's been a coon hunter, uh, and uh, he primarily is a bear hunter. And the reason that he's on Houndsman XP today is to talk about uh, the the correlation between his police dog work and uh, his bear pack, which uh, I've been able to see in operation this week. I'm here hunting with Heath. We've uh, had four great days of hunting so far, and um, I'll be heading back down to the Sunshine State tomorrow, but after hopefully another good day. But it's just so good to be here with my good friend Heath Hyatt. How are you doing, Heath? I'm doing well. Yeah. Yeah, we've had a good week, haven't we? And we have been very blessed, that's for sure. Yeah, tell tell our listeners a little bit about what we've been doing <clears throat> this week. Uh, I mean, we've been bear hunting. The weather started off pretty rough at this beginning of the week. We had some snow and ice Monday morning and Tuesday, and yesterday it warmed up a little bit. The winds got up yesterday evening, and this morning the winds were really, really bad. Some snow still laying on parts of the mountain, definitely on the north of the mountain. Yeah. Yeah, so we were uh, hunting up at, at about what elevation, do you think? Uh, we were about, uh, we're running between 3,800 and 4,200, basically, is about where we're at. Mm-hmm. All right. And the difference in the temperature from down the valley up there was, what, about 4 or 5 degrees maybe each day or more? Yeah, I'd say it's pushing between 8 and 10. Sometimes, most yeah. of the time it's... Depending on where we're at on the mountain, you're about about 10 degrees difference from the valley. Yeah, yeah. So we're here in southwest uh, Virginia. We're generally in the area of Blacksburg. I wouldn't, uh, is that correct? Uh, yes. Yeah, and, and listeners will recognize that as the hometown of Virginia Tech. Go Hokies. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The Hokie Bird. That's right. Home of the Hokie Bird. Yes. That's right. It's a great college here, and uh, uh, but it's a beautiful area, and uh, uh, quite a few bear. Got a good bear population here, don't we? Yeah, I mean it's it's been very good. I mean the bear population is has grown. Of course, if any any bear hunters throughout the last ten to fifteen years, the numbers have gotten better and better and better, and you know they're having a lot of complaints and. Um, getting a lot of flack from the bears that's leaving the areas that we can hunt because of the the land range, the national forests, going down into the the valleys and the farmland and getting in people's houses and trash and chickens and anything else they can get into to eat. So a lot of the bear that we're not seeing are still in the lowlands or Mm -hmm. down downwards uh, more populated. All right. 
Well, uh, just talking a little bit about our hunt and our method of hunting and all, we started out on Monday morning. I flew up on Sunday after getting my flight all screwed up, I, uh, but uh, ended up, you picked me up at the airport in Roanoke, and uh, and I'm staying here in your lovely home out here in uh, Reiner, Virginia, out in the country from uh, from Christiansburg, and uh but we went, uh, the first day we hunted, uh, let's recap that hunt just a little bit. Do you remember much about it? It's been such a whirlwind. We have treed a bear every day uh, this week. I don't remember how we even started that track, honestly. Um, I well, know most of the tracks <clears throat> we've started have been either, uh, well, I think we've rigged some. But I think most of them have been started in the snow up on top. Yes, last three days for sure. And I'm sure Monday was too. I just I don't remember. Oh, yeah, we had went in uh, to another area looking for a, a certain bear. Right. And right. one had crossed the road on the other guys that was hunting with us, and they ended up putting on it. And we were able to get around and get in front of it and get some dogs packed to it. And they treat it very shortly right. after that. Well, the way we prefer to hunt is to uh, find a track and put down a dog or two. That's uh, an experienced coal trailer that we can depend on. But now you're kind of in a rebuilding uh, mode here with your pack, although I've seen some really good work out of your hounds this week, Heath. But uh, uh, what about about the pack of dogs that you're running? Well, yeah, I'm definitely rebuilding. Um, my old dog, Ring, died two years ago. He was 15, so I didn't get to hunt him the last couple of years. And mm-hmm. then my old Jip that's hanging around the yard here, she's 13. And I had two, <clears throat> I had a litter of pups that were very, very nice, very natural starting dogs. And I was very high on them, but until they matured and I could actually see what I was getting at the end of the finished product. They're not exactly what I want. They're easy-going dogs, love to be around people. Um, they do a decent job. They do a decent job, but there's some things missing that I would like them to have. So I've still tried to keep the, the bloodline that I've had, which goes back to Lance Hutt and stuff. That's where I got my foundation and I've got a couple of those dogs um, still here. And, of course, my pup that I've got that's five months old. And then i got a couple of um, of camp dogs that are really, really mm-hmm. coming on. Now explain what we mean by a camp dog. Uh, Mike Camp breeds them out in Oregon. And I ended up privileged enough to be able to get two of those, two of those dogs there. The little female I have just turned a year old, and the, the male I have is 11 months old. Right. We've seen some good work out of them this week. They have done a good job. Yeah. Very, very pleased. He's smiling, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, you mentioned Ring, and I'll give a shout-out to our friend Clay Newcomb with Bear Hunting Magazine, a great uh, uh, supporter and friend of Houndsman XP, um, uh, allowed me to do a story about uh, your ring dog and uh, just a little bit just reminisce a little bit about ring i'll just hard-headed make you want to pull your hair out what little bit of hair i have left and but man he could flat get after a bear and uh, i mean 
you know, my definition of a bear hound, I know we talked about it this week several times. Uh, my definition of a bear hound is a dog that you can take from the truck. He can strike the track, trail the track, jump the track, pursue the bear enough to put enough pressure on him to trim and stay treed or stay bayed. Um, that, to me, is a definition of a bear hound. So Ring was a bear hound. I mean, he could do it from point A to the finish. And if he had help, it was great. And if he didn't have help, he would do it by himself. Yeah. Um, and I've I've been lucky enough to have a couple of those dogs through my 25 years of, of bear hunting. And But he was, I'd like to have four more down there just like him right now, I can <laughs> tell you that. Well, it was a pleasure to write that article and learn more about Ring. Now, I didn't get to hunt with Ring because when you and I hunted together, uh, which we did uh, quite a bit back in the days when you had a dog named Frosty, Frosty. and a female named Belle, mm -hmm. and I remember that we we caught a nice bear one day uh, there with those dogs. And now Frosty was the one that came down from Lance Hutton's dog, right? Yeah. And yes, Frosty, I'd, I'd bought Frosty from Lance when he was about six months old. And Frosty's brother, A.R., was Ring's dad, not the Ring dog that I had. So I've bred Ring to several females and and kind of, I've line bred. And that's kind of what, you know, I'm down to my fourth generation right now off of Ring. And then Frosty... I have a fourth generation off of him, too. So, <clears throat> yeah, Frosty was a big old black and tan with a frost frost on his nose. And then Belle was a, a Cameron female. Now, explain what a Cameron dog is. Uh, Dale Cameron. I'm from, from out in uh, Missoula, well, Stevensville, Montana. Yeah, she was a very, very nice dog. Now, she was a purebred blue tick, right? Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah, I see. Well, we uh, well that first day we treed and freed one. We decided made it a determination that that bear was uh, he might have been legal, but we let him go, which is is kind of uh, I've noticed is the uh, creed of this this group of hunters that you hunt with. Yeah, I mean we, I mean most bear hunters typically really don't care anything about killing the animal. I mean there's times that you have to, or and I know if you look at the you know, the, the conservation model, they've got to be harvested to keep the population where it needs to be in balance. But we, me, I love the hounds. I love to hear the hounds work. I love to see and and just be there and watch them and the amazing things that they do. That's what drives me. So the bear is just the end result. Right. right. And take a picture pet your dog and go catch another one that's kind of what we like to do but sometimes that just doesn't happen or we know like i said we've got to harvest some to keep the balance down right for sure well okay so then the second day let's see that uh, uh these hunt halls tend to run together we found that track on the top of the mountain right and we took in the snow my three young dogs and one of the one of the four-year-olds uh tanner and we took them in and got that bear jumped and they run it was it 2.4 miles wasn't exactly very far, was it? yeah it wasn't yeah. that far but the thing about it is and i think this is uh, kind of like bear hunting 101 here to talk about but 
when you find that track frozen or, or, you know, made the night before in the snow, and in this case, that track was at least half or maybe two-thirds snowed in. I mean, it had snow almost all the way up to the top of the of the imprint in that <coughs> snow. I don't know what was there, maybe five, six inches snow on the ground? Yeah, about six inches, and yeah, yeah. it was covered. It was almost, it was three-quarters of the way covered in almost snow. Almost covered out. Mm-hmm. And then typically you want to walk that track and, and to and 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 that's basically what happened, wasn't it? Yeah, the tanner was opening on the track as I was walking it, but I wanted to make sure that you know with the old tracks like that, sometimes they'll overshoot them or they'll get crossed up or you know just things happen. So to be a little bit more on the safer side, I walked that that track up for a good for decent ways and um, got it jumped out of its bed and we had put on it right then. Right. Right. Well, that's the day those young dogs really did shine. They they looked really good that day. And that's any houndsman out there knows that, you know, when you have a young hound that you're training and he steps up and gets the job done, that, man, there's nothing much much more exciting than that. Yeah, I was, I was pleased with them that day. I mean, I've been pleased with them all, well, the last three days. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm yeah. happy. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. For sure. Well, then, uh, then the third day, can you recap that one? Let me see here. Let me think. <coughs> uh, that was yesterday. Yeah. Uh, that one that turned out to be a, a, did, a sow bear. That's where we had the exciting. Oh yeah, they deal. rigged they rigged the do- they rigged the bear coming off the mountain to another track. When they they the dogs were trailing, they trailed. We put them in another track. They trailed it off the mountain, crossed the road, went off the mountain. And when the guys come off the mountain, they rigged a track. And they went back after we caught the dogs, um, crossed another road. And we went back up, and they were rigging the track actually up the mountain. The dogs were rigging, 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 which means they were opening on the box. And then when they topped around the curve, the bear was standing in the road. Mm-hmm. And they packed it up. All right. When we use the word pack it up means we just basically put more dogs on the track. Correct. Right. Right. Yeah, and that was the one that uh, that uh, our young hunter from Pennsylvania harvested. Yeah. And it yeah. was, they treated it in the steepest place they could tree a bear. <laughs> I mean, it's like a horse's face coming off there. I know as I stood on the road and looked up there, and you could see the bear way up on the road, on the mountain, you know, the leaves were... Basically, this is, uh, 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 you know, all hardwoods there and, and open timber. That you, uh, well, it's not open. I mean, it's it's rough as it can be. Uh, but to stand on the road, the bear looked like a black speck in the tree up there yeah. near the top. But you guys toughed it out and uh, and got up there. and uh, Well, that was a good day. That was a good day. And then... Then today we had a little excitement. It got a little western there today. Yeah, they they brought another track off the mountain, and we packed them young dogs in again today. When it uh, the old Tanner and a couple of other dogs, um, right. Levi and Timber and Titan, brought it across, and we packed a couple of young dogs right behind it, and they took it over that the mountain we treated on yesterday, and over into a valley and started parallel and the bear was just walking on the ground we've seen it several times yeah coming this down the was creek. along a swift <clears throat> creek 
that's probably as wide as a two-lane highway or yeah. better with the shoulders included. And the bear is over on the steep side. In fact, uh, uh, I was trying to get my, my video camera to work, <laughs> and uh, the bear was climbing up a log <laughs> straight up. I mean, it looked almost like he was climb, uh, going up a tree. Uh, but the bear uh, eventually uh, was uh, harvested uh, on the ground fighting the dogs, and you had dogs right in there. Mm. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, we give a shout-out to the other guys in the party that have been along this week, you know, some of the guys. Some of the guys that you hunt with normally, uh, who are they, Heath? I mean, you got uh, Wesley and Forrest and Glenny and see yeah. Hot Rod, well, Sam. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, that's the kind of one that's got dogs, Greg. This is a great <clears> group <throat> of guys. I've enjoyed hunting with them this week. I mean, they they all have been, uh, of course, I'm the old guy of the of the group, and uh, but they, they've all been uh, just hard workers. I mean, you know, I learned this as a kid way back, uh, that uh, it's a team effort bear hunting is in, the, in these mountains for sure, and uh, yeah, these guys are just so willing to jump in and do whatever's necessary, pick up other people's dogs, wait till after dark or into the night if necessary to help somebody pick up their dog. Uh, and I was just, just, you know, great sportsman, great sportsmanship. And uh, just been a great week. Well, well, Heath, I tell you what, let, uh, we want to get down to the meat of, uh, uh, of, uh, why we're doing this podcast today and we can tell bear hunting stories probably you and i to go back many years and certainly you know more or have more of them to share probably than i do but uh, uh when i first met you was back in 1997 and that was at plot days Pomeroy. in Pomeroy, Ohio. Ohio. Yeah, yeah that's right and uh, you won it overall that year with a plot female named brandy Yep. And my dad and I kind of teamed up together and won the opposite sex, which they give the top uh, scoring dog for the three nights, gets the Isaiah Kidd Award. And then the the second best, or, or no, the the opposite sex dog, then the high score gets the opposite sex. So that that's when we met in a photo mm-hmm. session at the motel, right? The hotel, right? yeah. Yeah. My dad was in that picture. He was, yeah, yeah. yeah for sure. Well... So then you and I kind of, uh, you handled the dog for me while I was working uh, and unable, you know, to actually run the dog myself. And uh, and also our relationship kind of kind of built from there. But tell uh, the listeners a little bit about who you are. You know, where are you from, your education, um, just a little bit about a uh, short bio. I'm from a little small town in southwest Virginia named Nar- it's called Narrows, about 1,700 people population. I right. uh, graduated in 91. That shows my age. Uh, started into law enforcement around 2003. After uh, going to college no, and getting no, no, no I, before. Okay. Yeah, I, I started into law enforcement before I got my, edu- my, my degree and what set me to get my degree is I started teaching some specific classes that was law enforcement only to the one of the local colleges and the professor there pulled me aside and said hey you 
really need to get your education. You're really good at this, and this is something you should look at in the future. And his name was Doc Weiss, and so I got my associate's degree there at that college and then ended up going to Bluefield and getting my degree, my bachelor's degree from it. I see. There's um, And then so once you had your degree, now we <laughs> – you told me a funny story about after you went through the police academy. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> the day I graduated, which was, I can tell you, it was December the 5th, and we graduated. Graduation was at 11. It was over about 1, 1.30. I got to my truck after graduation to go home. I got a voicemail that says, hey, I found a bear track. It's, so, it's up here on the mountain. And so I call the guy back, and I'm like, I'm on my way. I got to go home, change clothes, grab the dogs. Put on the track about 3 o'clock that evening, and by 5 o'clock we had him treed. And um, Fred, who's hunting with us, uh, ended up taking that bear. And that was to my blue, to my two blue dogs. That was Belle and Clyde, which were both the Cameron bred blue dogs. And that was the day that I graduated from the police academy. <laughs> well, bear hunting and, and hound hunting has always been a passion with you. I know that. From uh, Let's explain a little bit how you got into hound hunting and uh you know and and then how that evolved into your work in in training yeah so i long long story short we had a i'm I was, i've always been an avid hunter i mean i've deer hunted turkey hunted and, and loved to fish of course growing up in a rural area that's what you do um and that's where i spent most of my evenings and weekends and you know that's what i did and we had a big lease up on East River Mountain, which is the mountain that on one side you're in Virginia and the other side is West Virginia. And one of my buddies had shot a bear one evening during deer season. And at that time, I had met a guy um, from West Virginia that had some bear dogs. Didn't know anything about bear dogs. Didn't know any, My granddad had them, and I hated them because they were tied up behind my house. And they barked all the time, and I couldn't sleep. So that's what my thoughts were of a hound and anyway he shot this bear i go and i call uh porter and i'm like hey we we shot a bear you think you could bring a couple of those dogs and track it for us at least help us try to find it and he was like oh yeah i'll be over tomorrow about lunchtime and i'm like what you know be tomorrow and he's like yeah i'll be over tomorrow at lunchtime don't worry about it well sure enough about lunchtime he rolls in and it's big old ford 250 dogs hanging out of every hole in a dog box <clears throat> so we go up on the mountain and we get in there where um the guy had shot the bear and the dogs just erupted i mean when you say the ground shook that's what it sounded like at that point in time for me and we had the dogs on the lead and we led them around for the same half an hour hour i don't know it was, it was a while and whenever did find the bear and that that particular incident right there, or not incident, but that particular moment, I was hooked. Hmm. I was hooked. So I ended up buying two dogs off of that off of Porter, which um, after an extent of having them for two years, one of them ended up getting hit. He was he got hit in the road. He was run, he run a deer off the mountain and ended up getting hit. And then the other one I kept for two years and hunted him and that's what got me into hound hunting mm -hmm. 
And it just so happens that I, mean, I thought he was a bear dog, so I thought I was bear hunting. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was hunting dogs more than I was hunting bear, but that's that's how it started. And then that was in '95, uh, and then June of '96 is when I bought Brandy, and I hunted her for a year. That's when I got into coon hunting, and I I didn't know anything. I mean, I know. The, the lingo we use in the law enforcement world is OJT. We call that on-job training. That's what I was getting. I didn't know anything about anything. I was turning dogs loose and following them and learning learning what they were doing and trying. And a good friend of mine and you were both, Dale Breeden, kind of took me under his wing and, you know, helped me and guided me and helped me learn what, I should and shouldn't be doing and what I should be looking for. But anyway, Brandy Brandy was my first actual coon hound. So that was 96, and then 97, I took her to plot days the first time. I didn't even know what plot days were. I, a couple guys from town had plots, and they went, and they said, you ought to come join, take, go with us because you got a plot dog. And So I went with them. I didn't even know what it was. And the first night... I you know I drew out with Gary Cox who's big in the plot world and uh, we hunted me and him hunted he hunted old Jack and I ended up winning a cast that night and then the next night I drew out and won my cast again and all this is I'm telling the people that's listening all this was blind luck because I still didn't know what I was doing the dog had the uncanny ability to do what she did which made me look good I didn't I didn't have a clue and in the I was sitting there the third night before we drew out. I was sitting on a picnic table outside the 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 the, the shelter there where they was going to draw out, and Denny Long walks up to me, who, if anybody knows the plot breed, Denny was a big in the plot breed. And um, Denny walks up to me, he started talking to me, and, you know, he he knew who I was by name because of the guys that I was up there with. And he said, he said, buddy, he said, you win this cast tonight, you've got this whole thing won. And, I didn't really still know what he was talking about. Then he explained the Isaiah Kidd Award and what it meant. And about that time, I felt like I was sick at my stomach because I got nervous (laughs) because what you know what could happen. But somehow I ended up winning that night. Um, I drew out with Wayne Steele with the Star Mountain Plots and drew out that night and ended up winning my cast that night and won the whole hunt. And that was kind of the start of it. And then we took a picture. That I next morning remember that uh, yeah. because my dad and I, uh, he hunted the, our Wrangler dog at, uh, in the uh, veterans cast or whatever the first night, and he had a better score than I did with the dog <laughs> that I was hunting. So we said, well, we'll hunt him for the next two nights and see if we can win Isaiah Kid. And the best we did was second behind you and Brandy. But uh, Brandy went on to be the Purina Outstanding Night Hunt Plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, she won the high scoring plot of the year, mm-hmm. and she made, of course, the Grand Knight champion, and uh, and uh, quite a quite a little dog there for she, sure. She, at that point in time, you know, the late nineties to two thousand, she she was the one that made me. I mean, I was nobody. The dog just was winning. Mm-hmm. You know, she she was really good dog. Right. She won a lot. We were running the Perina circuit that year too. We was trying mm-hmm. to get up in the Perina points, and so we were going. We went to Autumn Oaks and Winter Classic and all the the state 
the the breed day. I mean, we mm-hmm. were hunting as much as we could. PKC plot days, we hunted. We did. <laughs> you and I hunted through throughout together. That's right. <coughs> well, okay, let's um, let's try to move into here how hunting, your passion of hunting and these dogs, and then, of course, you had already been bear hunting mm-hmm. before you were coon hunting, right? Yeah. Or, or at least... theoretically that's correct so you know how did this all this hunting activity on the things you'd learned and so forth helped you get into this role as a master trainer of police dogs so like i said i started my law enforcement career in 03 um about 18 months into that the area that I was working in, we we were it was really drug infested. We were getting a lot of narcotics off the the street, and I had had several conversations with our administration, some people at the town up at the town office about um, getting a, a narcotics dog, and you know it just they kind of shot it down, and we'd brought it back up, and I kind of went in and made a proposal about it. And just one day they come to me and says, hey, do you think you can find us a dog? Well, again, I was, you know, seven or eight years into the hounds. But when you go into police work, that's a completely different animal. And I said, sure, I'll find you one. (laughs) (laughs) So I did. I found a a yellow lab that we went and looked at. We tested it. And I'm using quotation marks because I didn't even know what a test meant at that point in time. He, He knew how to find narcotics and... So I ended up with the dog, and it was because I had hounds. They thought that that was a good pair. Um, little did they know or I know that that's what's driven me through my law enforcement career. I mean, I I don't feel like I'm going to work any day that I go. Hmm. You know, I have a, I have had a dog. I've, I'm on my third dog now. I've had a dog with me for the 16 years that I've been doing it. Um so how that correlates into the the title, or if you want to say title, or the position, or or the where I'm at now, my the hounds taught me so much about the ability of a dog, what a dog could do, and then when I went into the 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 police aspect of it with the canines, um, I always had a lot of high expectations. Because I seen what these hands, and I had Frosty and Bell at that point in time, and I was seeing what these dogs were doing, and I'm like, you know, these dogs can do more. You know, we we can do more. So I was training with a group in Abington, actually trained with the state police, and then <clears throat> when I took the job here in Christiansburg, which was in 2010, I started training with the guys here in New River Valley. It wasn't no sense in driving to Abington, and what happened is. Some of the older guys that were in the group were getting ready to retire or they were giving up their dogs. And I just kind of fell into that go-to or can you help me with the dog part of it. And I I decided then that I needed to be credible. Mm-hmm. So that's where I went to try to get certified through the state to get my master trainer you have to go through that's a five-year period it's a five-year ordeal it's not something you just snap your fingers and it happens you have to train under different master trainers and you go and you get your trainer status and then after you get your trainer status 
you have to go, you're basically doing like a, a journeyman through for three more years to get your master trainer. I see. Um, yeah, and that's what happened. I just kind of, I just kind of fell into that because of my knowledge of dogs. Right. And I, I could understand and read dogs where some of the other guys couldn't. And I think that's kind of what separated mm-hmm. me there. Not that they, that I knew anymore. It's just where I had the hounds, mm-hmm. you know, and you, you start watching those dogs and you're spending time with them and you see all the things that they do. You know, I, I could pick up on that with the police aspect of it. All right. So, and the tracking, tracking is what, dry, I, that's my favorite part of the police world is catching people. I mean, having those dogs, tr- just like tracking a bear down or a coon, or that's what I like to do. Right, right. Well, I know early on when we would hunt together, I noticed that you had a passion for communicating with your dogs, getting them to handle well, simple things like walking with you from the tree back to the truck or off the lead and being under voice command and things like that. So I think think you're a natural for that kind of work if there is such a thing, or at least you had a desire from early on to have a dog that that handled and responded to to your commands and so forth, right? Yeah. Um lot, a lot's changed in that you know 20 years or when we hunted last 15 12 years ago. But yeah, I, I mean I don't I don't believe in some things. You know, the dog, you know, a dog's needs to listen and mind and you know it's not pleasurable when something's jerking you off, jerking you plumb down the mountain and pulling you and wrapping you around trees. And, um, you know, at one point in time with the set of hounds that I had, the only time I put a lead on them was at the tree, mm-hmm. um, just a time back. And right, then, to then protect we got, them more than anything right. else, to control the situation in case the bear came out or whatever. Yeah, and right. then after we left, the bear left the tree, I just walk them out 20, 30 yards, turn them loose, and they'd follow me to the truck. So, Well, some of the interesting conversations we've had this week in the truck is we usually, it gets hot and heavy out there when there's a bear <laughs> race going on, so we don't talk too much about that. But these times when we're driving back from the hunt or, or whatever, we sure haven't had much downtime this week for sure. But we talked about, you know, the foundations of hound training and the basics and and I really liked what you had to say you know about how to build a foundation uh with your police dogs and also with your hounds and how to establish levels of control and and things like that Let, let's get into that a little bit we talked about electronic trainers and how they apply and stuff so I just want to kind of pick your brain and give you the the carte blanche here to kind of talk about those areas yeah, I mean, I think in any, you know, I've learned, I mean, I've learned so much from my hounds that apply to my police side of it, and then I've learned so much from the police side of it to my hounds. I've tr- I've changed, I've really changed my hound training because of the, the service dogs, the, the way that the control works and the things that you do, and I have learned, I mean, I'm very blessed. My department sends me to seminars all across the United States. Um, each year we get to, you know, I basically go to, I go teach at one, and then the other the other one I get to go to and sit and listen and learn from all all kinds of people. 
in law enforcement and even some in the civilian world with, you know, the sport dogs. I mean, the sport dog guys are, you know, they have a lot of control, a lot of motivation with their dogs. Um, now, the application into the to the police side of it's a little different, but, you know, you learn a lot from those guys. And so I've been I've been blessed to to be able to do that. But the foundation of any dog training is the most important. I feel like that you can, other than genetics, mm-hmm. because if your genetics are not there for whatever you are doing, whether it be, you know, hound hunting or for police dogs, you know, a good trainer can take an average dog and make him better and take a better dog and make him outstanding. But genetically, if it's not there, there's only so much you can do. But the foundation of training, I've learned through several when I started, you know, like I said, 15, 16 years ago with, with our police dogs, um, it was basically compulsion training. You know, it was command, correction, command. You know, tell the dog what to do. If he don't do it, you make him do it. And then if he don't do it, you you know, it's the, that's the process we went through. And at the time, I didn't know any better. It's the way I was taught. That's what I thought. And then, you know, it really when it changed was in 2013. Uh, I was in St. Louis at a seminar and that's when my thought process just started flipping and the learning I, it just it multiplied mm-hmm. but a dog has to have three things to survive and this is any dog this is not a hound this is not just a police dog this is any dog a dog's got to have food air and water that's what drives a dog and if you can learn to take those through thre- those three things um you can really motivate a dog. I do all of my obedience training with food. And I'm not saying treats. We talked about that. Right. You know, treats are different. I feed my dogs from my hand. I'm all, The first thing I'm doing is I'm building a bond with those dogs. And you can build a, a bond with a dog so much quicker with food. And the food dog's taking it from you. Um I know some dogs are food aggressive. I know this is in both worlds, hound and service dogs. I don't have any dogs that's food aggressive anymore because I feed them from my hand, mm-hmm. and they understand that. But So when I'm doing, when I'm training a dog to lead or load or, I mean, this is just basic stuff. I, I use food. I use food. And if they don't, you know, do the task that I've asked them to do, I cut back on that food. And the next day they're a little bit more motivated. You know, so I, I I use food for a lot of stuff that I do with both both my hounds and police dogs. Um, and if we talk, you know, when you say foundation, the worst thing that I see in my experience, so that I'm talking about me, is that we shortcut processes. You know, if if the dog's not completing a task and does not understand the task, then you move you can't you can't go a b and then jump to d e or f you can't skip c and that's what i see a lot in both sides of training with hounds and police is the dog gets going good so we're a b c and the next thing we know we're at z and we have a whole handful of problems or issues because we didn't take our time and do each step and take the time to do it I will take a month to work a dog on a certain issue if I need to. 
Yeah, well, break that down a little bit and give us some for instances in what you're talking about. Uh, let's see. So, okay, I'll give you an example, and I kind of had this happen. One of the dogs that I have had, when I got the dog, he was like a coyote. And, I mean, when I say coyote, he was coyote shy. You couldn't get your hands on him. And so I I ended up catching him and got bit the first time. And this is a hound. This is not a police dog. We're talking about a hound. And I put him in a pen. And the first day I went ahead and gave him some food. Well, the next day I went down to his pen. I spent about 30 minutes. I brought the food. I went in his pen with him. I sat down on a bucket. And... I have the food here at my hand. Well, the dog does not come to eat. He stays behind his, he gets, he jumps behind his dog box. So this went on for a couple of days. And in fact, this was actually a five-day period. Um, and by the fifth day, I was able to drop some kibble on the ground. The dog would come to my feet and and would pick it and run, pick it and run. I'm like, okay, so I'm making a little progress here. By the sixth or seventh day, he was eating out of my hand, but I couldn't pet him. Mm-hmm. He'd come and eat, but I couldn't. And when I'd lay my hand on him to pet him, he would shy away. Ten, twelve days into this, he's eating out of my hand. I'm petting him. I'm pu- pulling on his collar, touching him, grabbing his feet. Um, I went through this process for two or three weeks with him. And you're hunting with that dog this week, and you would never mm-hmm. know that that dog exactly. has ever had an issue but so I used the food to conquer his fear and to trust me because he's eating from my hand. I'm feeding you. This is I'm here to help you. I'm here okay. to give you life or however you want to say it. So I um I use food a lot and in, and even with the police dogs, the same the same thing, you know, we do I do a lot of shaping behavior. Um and I mean any Anybody that's listening to this that does, you know, we use a clicker method or we, you know, I I can shape that behavior and mark it with a yes and we can bridge, bridge behavior and stuff like that. But I use, I use food to, to teach my dogs to heal and teach my dogs to down and teach them to, you know, stand. Now, how do you do that? So I, I, I know that I've got this Appalachian American slang, so some of these people... <laughs> That's but I I do a lot of luring into place, so I put some, and I use a certain type of dog food to do this, so I can put it in my between my thumb and my forefinger, and I can put a couple kibbles in there, and I lure the dog into place. And when I mean lure, the dog has to be hungry to work. You know, I can't feed him two big bowls of food and four or five packs of treats and expect him to perform for me. This is, does not work that way. So... I'll cut back on his food a little bit or whatever I need to do to get him hungry and motivated. You know, if if guys will start doing this, that they'll see how much motivation a dog has to eat. And most hounds are hound hound they're they're food hogs anyway. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's not very hard with a hound. So I'll lure him into place and when I get him to work to that everything we do is in pictures and I may be jumping ahead or or getting off a little bit but um, so every behavior that I shape is like you take a picture and that's the, if you take a picture of that animal in that pose or in that, that whatever, like the dog sitting and actually making eye contact with me and looking up into my eyes, 
and you snap a picture, that's shaping a behavior. So I will, I'll pop, I'll get the lure of the dog into place, give the food, and and I'll click, use a clicker, which click click, or I'll say yes, and that means you you're good, and I'll reward them with the food. So what I do is I'll just pour out a cup or whatever I'm feeding the dog for the day of that dog food, and we go through certain exercises. And I may go through, we don't teach a dog to sit or lay down. Dog does that at its, when he's a Leisure. puppy. Right. Okay. Yeah. We're just pairing the word with it to get him to do it. Okay. And I do a lot of back cha- back chaining. So when my dog's in a sit, when he's first sitting, I'll say sit and feed him. And then I work that backwards. People, sometimes they do it wrong. Or it's not wrong. Sometimes they do it another way. Um you know, the dog has to understand the, the word, and if he's up, his butt's already there, then he understands. But when the dog's standing and you say, sit, they'll look at you like, what do you want me to do? You know, but so I start back, I call it back chaining. I'll, the dog's sitting, and I tell him, sit. And then as we progress through those um, stages, when the dog's looking at me, I can say, sit, and his butt plops down. So, mm-hmm. And I do that with food. It's all with food. When that butt hits the ground, boom, food. He gets fed. He gets well, fed. Well, I think most will agree that sit's probably the easiest command to teach you. It is. Yeah. yeah. As houndsmen, we share very unique needs when we make a decision to relocate, especially when it comes to finding a hound-friendly environment in which to live. REMAX Hall of Fame realtor Evan Harrell is a houndsman himself and he and his team understand your relocation needs as no one else can. With so many things to consider before you move, Evan can help you find just the right location anywhere in the country whenever you decide to go and will even help with the process of selling your present home. And Steve, REMAX Elite Realty is based in Franklin, North Carolina. Evan Harrell specializes in residential sales and especially in helping people like us to relocate to the locations we choose anywhere in the United States. Remax has been the leader in residential transactions since 1999 and rated the number one brand in real estate. Evan has been named top producer four years in a row and Chairman's Club recipient in 2018. Contact Evan online at evanherald.com or give him a call at 828-371-5103. You and your hounds will be glad you did. Well, uh, okay, so what I want to do is kind of bridge this a little bit and talk about what I found was fascinating this week, was talking about how you use the electronic trainer and your methods and how they may vary from the way most hound people typically use an electronic trainer. Can we talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, I've I've roined probably several good dogs in my life by not knowing how to use the, the e-collar. Right. Um, the e-collar is not for punishment. That's not what it was designed for and i didn't learn this until i got into the police work and started working patrol dogs um you know a patrol dog is a different animal i mean we talked about drives and you know sitting the dogs into different drives and having that yeah i wanted to discuss yes. that too so hold <clears> that <throat> thought yeah so 
for the e-collar or whatever you you called it there a second ago. Well, electronic yeah, trainer. Yeah, electronic trainer. E-collar. E-collar's yeah. generally accepted. Right. So, I mean, we, I was taught, or I thought, I don't even know if I was taught how to use it, is that, you know, put it on a dog, he chases a deer, and you stem him. And the next thing you know, the dog's squalling and doing flip-flops and, you know, he's continuing to run. And then you stem him again, and the dog gets up and takes off again. I know if people are hunting hounds and they've got really good genetically bred dogs, they know exactly what I'm talking about because they've been there. So I learned a lot about the e-collar in my police part of it. Um and then we'll go back in to, to do a little bit of trash breaking so I can actually put that into a, a picture so people can see what I'm talking about when I explain it. So I met a guy by the name of Jeff Shetler. Um, Jeff's from California, but he lives in Odesto Beach, um, South Carolina. And we were talking about the dogs switching off on tracks. So for us in the police world, when we're tracking one individual, I need to stay on that that scent, that odor. And that would be the same as us tracking a coon or a bear or a coyote, whatever we're tracking, and the dogs running trash or whatever. So we got to talking about how you, for one of our certification parts in tracking, we have to have a cross track. So what that means is during this half-mile track that we have to complete, another human has to walk across the track that you are actually tracking. So a lot of dogs, when they get to that cross point, well, they want to switch over because it's the freshest track. And we'll talk about like the like the evolution of a dog. And if you go back to the pack mentality, you know, so the dog has to eat to survive. And if you go back to the pack mentality, the dogs will chase the freshest odor because they know that's the one they can track and catch right. and 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 survive off of. But now you're telling me, I've got to tell that dog that, yeah, this is the freshest odor, but I can't, you can't leave this one. You've got to continue pursuing this one. Mm-hmm. So genetically, the dog wants to, to track the freshest odor. Right. So what we do is, and you can, you can relate this into your, to the hounds and trash breaking, and man, have I made so many mistakes and still do. I mean, I have to catch myself because the foundation that I was trained with or I learned with is so hard to kick. It's right. hard for us to overcome, you know, the things that we learned. Um, so anyway, with Jeff, we got to talking, and Jeff's like, you know, Heath, you can't, you can't let them even start to take that track. You know, as soon as they start head popping, and that 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 dog starts air scenting or wants to come, he wants to come off of the track he's on. You have to stop that right then. So how I related that into the hound world was I would turn my dogs loose on a deer, let them get going, let them get opening, and then start stemming them. And we all know, I mean, if you're using a Garmin, I don't know, most people are using a Garmin now, and you've got eight settings, and it goes, now the new ones have, you know, high, low, and medium. So you have basically 24 different settings on that, that collar. What happens when you run off a run out of twenty four? Where do you go? I mean, what do you do if that dog fights through that? And if you've got a really headstrong dog, it's going to happen. So, we got to talking about it and putting it into application 
on the hound world. So what I do now to break my dogs or even to stop them is I go out or I see a deer, I find a deer, and when the dogs are young, I put them out on it. But this time, I don't let them run it. I don't even let them get started running it. When I see that behavior, when I see that that body language of that dog start to get a little bit excited and that tail comes up and starts wagging and that nose starts going in the air and popping or it starts dropping down on the ground and, you know, you see those behaviors in that dog changing where you know they're picking up odor, that's when you start using the stem. And when we talked about the stem levels, the stem should be like somebody sitting there and poking you on the shoulder, just enough to annoy you, to say, all right, stop, what are you doing? Stop. That's where your stem should be at. And what happens when we turn the dog loose on the deer and he's running and he's in, you got to understand, he's in his highest drive. When we talk about drives of a dog, that dog is in prey drive. He has got to catch that because, remember, we're going back to the pack. Even though they're domesticated, there's some things you cannot take out of this dog, and that's some of their natural instincts. Mm-hmm. So his desire to catch that is more so than not. It, it's stronger than, Correct. than any Correct. So other. his drive is higher. So when you put that dog in prey drive... Your stem has got to be elevated. And when you run out of stimulation levels, where do you go? What do you do? Mm -hmm. So the thing that we have, that I have learned is when I put my dogs down and when they start showing interest, I start zapping them. And when I say zapping them, I mean nick. It's It's just enough to annoy them to stop. Now, if typically I, that would be, I, I, we discussed this, and you said that different dogs require different levels. Yes, but where would be a starting? So point? yeah, so I have found. Now I'm talking about my hounds that when they're younger and and controllable, I can usually. And I'm talking about a Garmin because I think that's what most people are using. Um, I'm on a lo, on a three medium to a four high now a four high will make some dogs squall that's what we want to not do if you're having to make the dog squall you're using too much stem you know that now you're causing pain and you're not you're not really accomplishing you're making that dog's mind go crazy that's what's happening it would be like um somebody just punching you in the face and your mind you know you go you go red and that's kind of the same thing that happens with a dog when you start applying that pain. One of the things that I learned from my police dog training, um, to speed a dog up, we use the E. And that doesn't mean that I'm causing him pain to make it happen. Let's talk about endorphins. A certain amount of pain releases endorphins, which is pleasurable. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm. So when you're using that slow amount of stem... That's what you are doing is releasing endorphins, and it's pleasurable. It's not painful. Mm-hmm. So I have taken a lot of that out of my police training and added it to my hound stuff. Now, am I saying that I haven't had to use as much juice as I've got? 
I may have, but I try to stay away from that. That's not my goal. That's not what I want to accomplish. And if I'm having to do that, I need to back up and rethink my training. Or I need to back up and say, okay, I really messed this up on my foundation. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be an issue. We shouldn't have – I shouldn't have to go this route to so do that. So you're saying basically annoy the dog and distract him? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so when you're – I mean, if if you could – Put the E on your arm, and basically it should make your muscle, that muscle contract. That's all it should do. And if anybody's done this on a dog, put the, put the collar on them nice and snug, and you can start finding, you can start using those stem levels, and basically you should see that neck twitch. And the dog will kind of look at you like, what? What are you doing? That's not causing pain. It's like, it's like you going to, um, if you're going to the chiropractor, and getting those electros, the, the electrical shocks on your back, mm-hmm. you know, that's not painful. But you feel those muscles contracting, and mm-hmm. it takes your attention away from what you're doing. Mm-hmm. That should be the the starting point, and that should be, you know, your foundation. And when we shortcut those foundations and they're not solid, then there's where you end up having trouble through the span of the life of the dog or, or when you have the dog. So basically, what I'm hearing is the dog's on a bear track and a deer jumps up and runs across. That's typical. Of, I mean, that typifies what you talked about, about laying the track and having a human walk across. Yeah, it would be another, it would be another, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so the dog. Or a coyote. It, <laughs> yeah yeah we had a little incident yes we did this week where there was a little distraction there yeah. from a coyote yeah yeah all right so the levels of control i've heard archie Dore talk about this from down in louisiana about the um, infinite amount of stimulation that he uses you know to stop a dog from running trash or whatever and i think it plays into this although Archie's methods may not be as technical and so forth as yours. He's he's learned these things that you're that you're talking about. Uh, we talked earlier about the importance of hands-on with with dogs, and you talked about some of the dogs that you get for police work. And I think you have like what now thirteen dogs that you're, for lack of a better word, managing mm-hmm. or overseeing in, in, yes. in several cities or counties around in this area. And explain that, what the difference you've seen in dogs that have hands-on, early-on type thing, as opposed to not. Yeah, I mean, I, of course, I mean, you're in my house, and I mean, I have a, a dog for the first time ever, you know, in the house, a pup that I'm, you know, I'm raising. But, you know, the first, I, I mean, I, I don't know how much people research this stuff, and I know these guys are super intelligent, but the first, you know, 16, 16 weeks, four months of that, that dog's life is so important. Um, you know, when when you bring it off the mom is important. You know, when you separate it from the litter is important. I mean, all that stuff. Um, Hands-on, I mean, I, I want to spend as much time with my dogs as I can. And I know people are like me, and, I'm, and I work 12-hour shifts. I work straight nights. You know, I have other obligations with my family and this and that. I mean, it's really, really hard, but this has become a way of life. 
you know, the passion has, has driven into it. And, you know, you got to spend time. And if you don't, if you don't put the time into a dog to lay the foundation and to do the hands-on, I mean, the leading, the loading, the, the, all the basic stuff should be done before the dog ever right. goes to the woods. You mentioned earlier your daughter Maddie and how she interacts with the dogs and early on uh, about yes. leading them around and, and all that. Yeah, Maddie can't keep her hands off of it. In fact, Maddie has earned the title. Her bus driver calls her Mad Dog Maddie. <laughs> because of all the dogs that we have and Maddie she loves she loves these animals and she goes to canine training with me a lot in the summer when she's out of school and she probably knows more about these dogs and the the police side of it and the training than most of the people that I'm actually training like she's <laughs> so involved and she's 10 years old right? 10 years old right. yeah she's a delightful young lady quite the <clears throat> horsewoman uh, yeah she's She's uh, horses and hounds. That's it. That's it. Well, you talked about sometimes when you get dogs in for training, some have been yes. had hands on and others not. Explain that. Yeah, so we're switching back over to the police police side yeah, of it this yeah. time, service dogs. Yeah, they're like most of our dogs are imported from vendors from, from, from Europe or overseas. And you can tell, like when you get a dog in, you can automatically tell some of these vendors – will raise a litter of puppies when they take them off their mom they'll let, they'll let them run loose for a couple months and about three to four months they put them in a pen and basically they give them food and water and that's it and at a year old they bring them out and they start testing their drives and to see if they're going to make a detection dog or an apprehension dog or a tracking dog or whichever um discipline they need it for and then they'll send these dogs over and we'll we'll get them and, I mean, it's just a headache. I mean, the dogs bark in the car. The dogs spin. Um, you know, they have so much pent-up anxiety where they've not been, you know, just fooled with and fooled with and fooled with. And then, you know, some of those dogs, too, and I, and maybe it's just genetically that, nah, it, they're hard. They're very hard. They, You know, the dog's a year old by now, and by the time we get them, they're 15, 16 months old. So you're pushing that two two year gap, and a, their foundation that was laid is it's hard to go back and dig up that footer and replace it. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like me saying I need to, to to lift this house up, pull out my foundation and redo it. It's so hard to go back and correct those things that were never done. It's very hard to do that. <clears throat> but I mean we. And the dogs that you get, some some of the dogs we get, they go to families like a foster family, and they'll raise them till they're, you know, eight or nine months old. Then they'll go back to the the people that had got them, and then they start working the dogs. Now those dogs, it's just a, it's two different type of animals. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a dog that's laid back. It's like a it's like a light switch. You flip it, it goes to work. Mm-hmm. You turn it off, it's it it turns off. And then the other dogs don't have a light switch. Like it's just it's nonstop. It's just nonstop. Right. right yeah. Right. Well, and and uh, well, you know, I think uh, you know we're getting on to here uh, about an hour now already, and I, oh, wow. I th- hope we can go a while longer. Um, that uh, five o'clock bell's going to ring <laughs> in the morning for us, but uh, this is all good stuff. Um, let's talk about some of the things that you've learned in your. Uh, 
from your police dog activities and work and stuff that you've applied to the hounds? Well, I think the biggest thing that, you know, I, I have taken from being able to be in both worlds is when I first got hounds, I mean, I didn't know anything. And I know it's a learning process. I know everybody that gets dogs go through that process. But for me then, you know, making a dog mind or lead was taking a switch when you was on a lead and popping him in the nose if he got out in front of you. That's that's what that's what we what's what I knew. I didn't know anything else. Um, going into the service dog side of it, I'm like, whoa, there's other ways to do this, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna go right back to the food. I mean, mm-hmm. I start my dogs off when my dogs, my, my like you know my when they're puppies, and, I, and everybody in the hound world's done this. So this, I'll, I'll tell you, this is like a this is like a buffet. If you like it, take it and use it. If you don't. Put it in your toolbox and use it later on if it ever applied. But we've all raised puppies where we put them in a pen and we turn them out during the day and then we go back to put them in the pen in the evening and you can't catch a scoundrels because mm-hmm. they know they're getting put up and they don't want to be put up. And I had this happen like litter after litter after litter. <clears throat> so I started using the food method and the only time when the dogs got put up and some people do this already they're way ahead of me it took me a long time to figure this stuff out so i start relating so when my dogs are in the woods and i'm calling them out i use a certain you know a call or whistle or whatever every time those dogs got fed from the time they got their eyes open and was eating their first bowl of food until three four months old Every time they got fed twice a day, they heard me holler or whistle or whatever. And they know, I mean, if you look at Pavlo, we're getting into some theories here, you know, Pavlo and B.F. Skinner and stuff with, you know, talking about um, the different types of training. Um, You know, every time they hear me whistle or yell, they know after a certain amount of time that there's food there. So... I whistle, I go to their pen, and they eat. They only eat in that pen for that period of time, and they start coming to me. And then as they learn that, I start going different places. You know, and I know a lot of a lot of people, you know, put their dogs in different, um, you know, they'll put their, their dogs, you know, dog food up on the tailgate or in the dog box. I mean, we still, I still do it. I mean, I still use it. I still do it. I also start my dogs a lot younger if I'm raising a litter of puppies myself on being gun shy and stuff like that over food mm-hmm. I will put um I'll put a lot of bottles and stuff and it's, I use this police dog to my hounds I'll put like just empty water bottles and milk jugs and stuff out in the pen and I'll put the food right in the middle of it and they got to dig through it to find it and they get used to that stuff knocking and bouncing and they don't it, it just helps them, and then, you know, I start making loud noises, and mm-hmm. all that's over food. So food is a calming thing for a dog, too. Um, you know, when we use toys for our reward on our police dogs, we also use, we can use food. And a lot of our explosive dogs now are, re, they they train with food, and that's how they, they train them. Because when you use the toy, you're you're upping that dog's prey drive, and we don't want a dog 
searching for an, or a bomb or explosive, and he's like a bull in a china shop. Mm-hmm. So if you use food, you also get a calmer, more relaxed dog. I see. So, that, I mean, that's just kind of some of the steps that I, that I do. Well, I, you know, I always try to think of the pl- <clears throat> practical application. The other day, uh, JJ, this pup that you have here, I was inside and you oh. were out. <laughs> yeah. And he had come to the door, so I let him in. And then I heard you call his name. Yep. And he, you were all the way down at the kennel, which is quite a ways down over the hill, and it was real faint. Yeah. And, man, he was instantly to that that door and wanting out of there. I mean, he was bouncing up and down to get out to get to you. Yeah, it's all food. I mean, it's all food-related. I mean, and, again, I had to put – I got him when, at a very early age. You know, he was seven, eight weeks old. And, you know, I started right then. And, you know, when that dog – I mean, I don't, I, didn't have, I don't have to use any force or any anything to make that dog listen. He knows when I call, it's food. Mm-hmm. Dad's going to feed me. Well, you know how we can, uh, you know, we can apply this. Just I'm seeing this all in action this week. You know, when you have situations in bear hunting where you need to catch the dogs. You know, you need to get the dog. Uh, you know, for instance, today we had a stream there. You know, we had mm-hmm. dogs across the stream. Things like that. Instances you need to have that handle on the dog for their safety, for your convenience, yeah. for for the efficiency of the hunt because we want to get these dogs caught up because that bear's crossed the road up the the next ridge and we want to get them gathered up and get them back into the chase type thing. So there's so many applications. Well, and to go back to what you, you know, the question you asked me, I think I got a little sidetracked there. You know, the police dog world into the hounds. I have learned through the police dog training and the people that I've met and the training that I've been to how to use the the stimulation of the e-collar in a positive manner and how to use food to do and get the results that I want. So what happens, so how does that end up in long term? Um, and we've all probably been there or done this with, with what I'm getting ready to say. I've had dogs that were, had the natural ability to catch game. And that means all I did is take them to the woods and turn them loose. They done everything else. They knew how to track and trail and tree. Um, the problem that I had is I didn't really have a handle on those dogs. And even when you were talking earlier about, you know, you know, having a handle on them, I I was using more, you know, I was using more um, compulsion than needed to be used, but I didn't know any better. And now, explain compulsion. Compulsion is um, is a negative behavior or a negative result. So yeah, I mean, I you know, I I was using a switch and doing this and doing that, and um, you know, and still, when you got six or seven dogs leading them out of the woods, sometimes you still have to, you know, do that. But I don't have to do it near as much. Um, I use the food, or I spend that extra time in the yard at the house or on Saturdays loading the dog up in in the back of the truck and taking a ride when I take the trash out. You know, I, I do all that stuff more so at home, but I use my police dog training to advance that now where 
at that time, and I think everybody has a learning curve and there's a learning process. I just, I've, I've really learned a whole lot more about how to do things in a different manner. And there's, there's a thousand ways to train a dog. Um, you have to pick what you like and what works for you. And each individual dog's different. We were talking about those stimulation levels earlier. When my dogs are not in a drive, and when I say drive, I mean they're just around the yard, they're piddling, they're not doing anything, there's nothing stimulating them. When you start stimulating a dog, when I say stimulate, I mean peaking their interest or moving their up, amping them up a little bit. Um, very, very little, very, very little E do you never, ever need. And I, and I mean like, like that the three, the three on a medium or three on a high is going to be that range. Mm-hmm. And then when you pop a dog into drive, let's say he's chasing a deer, that dog's maxed out. I mean, he can't get any more higher. I mean, it's just like me when I, when we're doing recalls with our dog, which means there's a, a suspect running away, and I send that dog on an apprehension, and I have to recall that dog or terminate, and terminate means the dog will down and watch that person run away. That's hard. I mean, that dog is in the most stimulated state he can be in. He is in prey, drive, capture. And I have learned to use the food and the e-collar to get that behavior where I need it to be. And I, and it gets it's nice and crisp. means, you know, when you tell a dog to down and he's running, that dog ought to be sliding, like coming in like a plane landing is what that dog should look like. And again, we go back to using the e-collar and endorphins and not causing pain because pain just shuts the dog down. Dog's going to fight through that, especially if he's really, really genetically driven. You're just going to shut the dog down. The dog's going to go red, and you're not going to get out of him what you need to get out of him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff, Heath. Really good stuff. What about sources that our listeners could go to? To, to maybe, you know, drill down into some of the things you're saying more. Can you recommend any books or, or videos or, or maybe individuals to Google <coughs> and uh, and to try to? Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you want to read, I mean, um, B.F. Skinner and, um, you know, Pavlo have, I mean, classical conditioning was Pavlo, which, you know, the, the, where he was ringing the dinner bell and, and the dogs, dogs would salivate. Yeah. That's the same thing I did with the dogs at the pen and when I holler. Like, I can go out here right now and I, well, I'm fed, but I can go out here tomorrow and and if you'd paid attention today, Walker was doing that. When I hollered for him and he was standing in that pen, he was starting to drool. Mm-hmm. Oh, he yeah. knew. So that's sure. classical conditioning. Yeah. Um, and then if you look at B.F. Skinner, <clears throat> you look at, the quadrants um, of conditioning, which, you know, uh, positive, negative, negative, positive. And you have to really study that stuff to understand it. And um, Bart Bellin, if people want to look up him, B-A-R-T-B-E-L-L-O-N, Bart Bellin, look up his videos. You can go on YouTube. He is like the godfather of police dogs and training and motivating dogs to do things that, that you never thought a dog would do. Um, he, he's been one, I've went to a couple of his seminars and I watch a lot of his stuff. He's a good one. Um, 
Well, that'll give our listeners a place to start to Google right. this, uh, you know, to learn more about this kind of training. Especially, I think the the idea of using food as a stimulus or uh, is that the right term? Yeah, I mean, a dog. You can motivate a dog with food, but you can't. I mean, and so let me just put this out there. Not that we ever do this or would ever do it, but a dog can go three days without water and 28 days without food. That's the threshold for a dog. You can't do no more than that. And I'm never saying that you should do that. That's not what I'm saying here. But, you know, we've all had to leave our dogs out in the woods for a day or two, you know, so right. we know, are they, are they eating? Are they picking up acorn? You know, what are they doing? But So to cut back on that dog's food or even to cut it down to a, a quarter of what you're feeding them, to keep that dog a little bit hungry, that food will work miracles for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, miracles. Um, like I said, building a bond, when we talk about that foundation, everybody knows that a bond with a dog is one of the most important things you can do, and having that bond and... I have seen it with my own eyes. I mean, the, the last dog that I just um, trained for personally, for me, for my police work, I got him off a plane in Dulles. He come from Holland. The dog was 11 months old. I brought him in. The dog didn't know me from Adam. And three days after feeding, you know, three days of feeding him in my hand, he eat out of my hand the first day. It wasn't an issue. But that bond was created so fast. Mm-hmm by doing that and i think if people would take the time you know you get a new dog from somebody and i, and I know hounds people just tie you know put them in a pen or tie them up and whatever but spend a little bit of time with that and you will see a huge difference that dog will start to trust you and the dog will start looking to you to do things because you are that dog's source of food and yeah. i don't think people understand how important or how much that means to that dog. Right. Right. It's been a great session, Heath. Yeah, I appreciate you having yeah, us. Yeah, we, we've had a great week. Uh, we've got one more day of this uh, five-day hunt for me. I'd like to I finish out strong, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you've got your season goes all the way up to what? In, into in, January? Yeah, the first Saturday in January, out right. 5th or 6th. Right. I can't remember what the date is. Well, when we had uh, Dr. Arlie Reynolds on, and I think you, you've mentioned to me that you've listened to that podcast several times. Oh, yes, now. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, he talked about the importance of, uh, of recovery and, mm-hmm. you know, resting of dogs. And I think you've already said that you're planning to take the weekend off after after tomorrow maybe and uh, and give your dogs a little recoup time and all because they've we've hunted them five days straight i think we had a couple that were a little short sore-footed that maybe they did, got a day off <coughs> here or there yeah but uh i'll probably won't hunt them again until monday they'll get a couple of days off yeah oh talk just a little bit before we close about the bear hunting in virginia and and what the future looks like and what, you know. Well, I mean, the bear population now is good. And, I mean, for hound hunters and, like, you know, guys that really, really enjoy the hounds, I mean, that's – it's a – I mean, 20 years ago, we didn't, we didn't catch 20, 30, 40 bear. We didn't do it. I mean, you know, you catch five bear in a year, I mean, you had a good year and had some good dogs. And, right. You know, the, the population has definitely <clears throat> increased and it's – um. Very good. I know I've talked to several of the conservation officers here, 
and they're getting a lot of complaints and they're looking at decreasing the population by 25 percent so if anybody's in virginia listening to this we really need to figure out because the complaints are coming from the the people that the private properties and stuff like that and i express to my opinion that you know you can uh, you can do away with the weight limit or you can open season or you can do whatever you need you you think you're going to do it's not going to cure the problem because the the places that we cannot hunt are where they're having the issues and that's usually on the small tracks or private land or around towns mm-hmm. around highways and stuff where we would never turn a dog loose so we really need to figure out a way and come up with a proposal to get to Richmond and figure out how we can work together and figure this out because um, I like the populate. I like being able to run, put my dogs on twenty or thirty bear in a season, and give them the experience, especially the young dogs. So, I mean, I really enjoy that. I think I know last year during the early season there was a lot of sales taken. And I didn't figure we would see a big effect this year and maybe not next year, but the following year we're probably going to see a, start seeing a decrease mm-hmm. in what we have. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, that's some stuff that concerns me. And, you know, as always, everybody, you know, respect each other and help each other out and, um, you know, be respectful to the landowners and stuff when you go in and all, try to always ask. I know we have a right to get our dogs, but we try to always stop and ask for permission and, you know, make amends. Just like today, you know, we had a dog that <laughs> wasn't that our was dog. a funny story. It wasn't our dog. Got in some lady's van that had groceries and eat her steaks and <laughs> half a gallon of milk and something else. So our group pitched in money to uh, make that right. You know, we don't want to give bear hunters a bad name and hound hunters, so we wanted to make that right, and we exactly. did. And For hopefully sure. that'll, you know, pay it forward. Pay it forward, guys. That's yep. that's how I feel about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, you know, uh, we always have to give a shout-out to our friends out at W Hunting Supply. Uh, you've used W. I do. I yeah, I use them a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do you yeah. think of them? The, uh, their customer service is phenomenal. Um, their products are good. I I've never had an issue. I mean, right. I, I mean that's where I buy most of my stuff from. Right. Yeah, we were listening to the uh, current co- uh, yeah. podcast there with Jason Doobie talking about uh, uh, Garmin One Hundred One today a little bit on the way back from the hunt. But uh, yeah, so shout out out there to Buddy and all the gang at W for doing a great job. Well, Heath, this is a, it's been a great visit with you. We've done about an hour and 20 minutes oh, wow. here today, so uh, that's probably a good place to kind of saw this thing off. Have you got anything else maybe that comes to mind you think we should have covered that we didn't? Not right off, and I hope I didn't ramble, and I hope I made sense in some of the stuff that I was saying. And if you can, you know, when I go to these seminars and I go to these trainings, this is this is what I tell myself every time, and a lot of these classes and stuff I've been to numerous times, and I always tell myself if I can take one thing away from this that makes me a better trainer and better with my my dogs and the guys that I train, then I'm benefiting from it. Right. So hopefully somebody, y'all can take one thing from this and make it better and make, make your training better and make your uh, time with your hounds more enjoyable. Right. Well, if our listeners have should have a question for you, can they hit you up on social media or yeah, whatever? Yeah, absolutely. You're you're on Facebook. 
Right. Heath Hyatt. Yeah. Right. That's mm-hmm. H E A T H H Y A T T. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Instagram is NRV Canine Training. And that's what it is on Instagram. So NRV Canine Training. training. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, Heath, it's been super. You've been a great guest here. I, man, I've had, I mean, guest, host. I'm the guest. You're the host. <laughs> it's been a great week to spend with you. You always, every time I see you, say, come and stay with me. We'll Absolutely. And, and uh, it's been kind of a, a busy uh, winter for me with, uh, uh, you know, the different trips that I've taken. I'm not done yet. We're we're going to do the Freedom Hunters Hunt uh, 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 with uh, Tanner. Uh, here uh, in January out at the uh, Navajo Nation with uh, Calvin Redhouse and Rez Hounds. And, Is that and in Arizona? In Arizona, yeah. Nice. We're going to be hunting mountain lion, and uh, yeah. we're going to be, at, we'll have uh, uh, Gary Robertson there with Carnivore TV. He'll be filming it in uh, big, big time. And, and our listeners should know that they can still uh, donate uh, to this hunt, we're taking this Gold Star family member and former Marine. He lost his dad in, in Desert Storm. Uh, we're taking him on an all-expense-paid trip, uh, mountain lion hunting trip. He's all excited about it. And uh, and uh, just go to freedomhunters.org, and uh, you'll see a way there to, to contribute. If you can give a dollar, you can give a hundred, whatever you can do uh, to give this young man a, a hunt of his lifetime and he's really uh, a true patriot and has served our country and has paid the f- extreme sacrifice in losing his father so well with that uh heath we've got a saying here now you know john harris over in west virginia now, don't I do. you? yeah john's a bear hunter isn't he mm-hmm. <laughs> john said one time they were over there trying to start a sheep killing bear and uh the old Santana was wanting to go one way and they were wanting to go the other. And old John said, and I'll close it out with this. Hey, you follow your hound and I'll follow mine.